Well, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, which is the focus of our passage today. So here's God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should com- complete among them. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also is your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. So now finish doing it well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, may your word penetrate our hearts today. Let me just pray that this message written to a church long ago is so relevant to College Church today. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in my second year in business school. And uh, after completing all my core courses uh, in accounting and economics and finance, I was beginning to dive into my concentration, which was entrepreneurship. And I found myself in a cohort that was guest lectured by one of the most successful real estate investors in the world, the late Sam Zell. And this was just prior to him purchasing the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Cubs. And I'll never forget how class began with the Zell's quite colorful opening remarks. He was a colorful character. And he held up a dollar bill for all to see, like this. He said, if you give this dollar bill to just anyone, chances are that they're going to spend it and it's going to be gone. 
But if you give this dollar bill to an entrepreneur, they're going to put it to work and it's going to earn another one. And he said, that's the simplest example that I can give in explaining the difference between someone who doesn't have the mindset of an entrepreneur and someone who does. In that time, Zell would go on to explain how he began his career uh, with, with nothing. And as a freshman at the University of Michigan, he managed an apartment complex in return for his room and board. And at the end of his undergraduate studies four years later, he was earning $150,000 a year by managing several properties. Every dollar he earned thereafter, he used to buy more and more properties and so on. At his death last year, Zell was estimated to have a net worth of $5.8 billion. Well, Zell's example kicked off for me a worldview about money that persisted for quite some time in my life. I looked at wealth around me as a means to generate more wealth, to hire people, to give them the ability to earn a living and support their families, but also use their skill and their horsepower to make more money for whatever company that I was involved in at that time. And I swam in the pool of other business professionals who also thought like I did. Many of them were Christians. Some of these Christian business people set up investment firms that micro-funded Christian businesses and ministries around the world, all with sustainability goals and profit generation, so that the funding would come once and only once with the goal that the funds donated would create business ventures that generated profits to go to the ongoing operations of the ministry. For many people that I walked with, the thought of giving money to something that wouldn't generate a monetary return actually became quite unthinkable. In fact, I I remember a close friend of mine, he was a believer, and, and he refused to give money to anything that didn't generate a return on his investment. And this included even tithing to the church. So when I transitioned out of the marketplace and in the, in, in the ministry, long and difficult discussions were had with him about him pers- uh, personally supporting me and my family as we transitioned into ministry. To him, giving anything that required an ongoing commitment to give and generated no monetary return, uh, monetary return was, was viewed as, frankly, an inferior strategy. In fact, Sam Zell himself donated millions of his own wealth to Northwestern University and other institutions, but he was quoted as saying that he viewed his giving as an investment, the development of people who will change the world through the motivation of profit and wealth generation. And then we come to today's passage. We'll soon understand from this passage that what I've learned is all I will say about my former way of thinking about wealth and money was not entirely incorrect. It was just incomplete. Let me explain. Having just celebrated the Corinthians' repentance that led to their salvation, as Felipe aptly preached on last week, here in this week's passage that we've just read, the Apostle Paul is now urging the Corinthian church to give generously. 
and to give towards an offering for the churches in distant Jerusalem and Judea. And we learn this not from what we just read, but we learn this from um, other things that Paul wrote, such as Romans. And in Romans chapter 15, and I think we'll have it up on the screen, I'll, I'll read Romans 15, 25 to 26. It says this, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So there's a gift, this gift that Paul's encouraging the church to give. He's, he's, giving, he's encouraging them to give it to the church in Judea, in Jerusalem. And we know this is not the first time Paul encourages these Corinthians either. We learn in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, we see Paul first introduce this offering to the Corinthian church. And here in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, it says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper. So there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And even in Acts 24 as well, we hear Paul bringing alms to his nation and to present offerings. So here we are. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he brings up this topic of this offering to the poor in Judea. And what we have here is some unfinished business between Paul and the Corinthian church. Now, before I get into the structure of this particular passage, there's one more interesting point of context related to Paul's ask of the Corinthian church giving to Judea. No doubt swimming around in Paul's mind is the well-laid Old Testament foundation of generosity found in the Jewish Mosaic law. And I like to think that this foundation forms the why behind his request. And hear this from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 15, 7, 8. If among you, if one of your brothers should become poor, if any, in any of your towns within the land the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Well, of course, there's other Old Testament commandments, and there's plenty in Proverbs that talks about generosity as it relates giving to the poor and for those with means to provide those in need. But isn't this particular request interesting on the part of Paul to the Corinthian church? Paul was sent out as a missionary to the Gentiles by the church in Judea. And here we have Paul urging the Gentile church in Macedonia and Corinth to give to those in need in the church in, Cor- in Judea. The foundational command to give to the poor comes from the law. But as we will soon discuss, Paul is pointing out for the church in Corinth, a church made up mostly of Gentiles, that this command is not just a Jewish law, but it's a fulfillment of the law by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the words of Paul in Romans 11, this Gentile church has been grafted into the olive tree of Christ. And the Old Testament commands in the Levitical law, in this case, being generous to those in need, fulfilled in Christ, are as important for the Gentile believers to obey as it was the Jewish believers to obey. Now, both Jews and Gentiles in Christ 
singing off of the same song sheet. So, with our context behind us, and what is taking place here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, here's the aim of what we're working towards and understanding from this passage. And that's this, that giving generously to others out of what we have been given by God is evidence, proof of the grace of God that is in each and every one of us. To make this point to the Corinthian church, and I hope to us today, Paul first begins with an example. The example of the Macedonian churches, verses 1 through 7, Paul cuts to the chase right here at the outset of verse 1. God's grace has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Why has God's grace evident in the churches of Macedonia? Well, Paul explains this in verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and poverty have produced an overflow of generosity. It's clear from the passage that the churches of Macedonia do not have an abundance of wealth. We know from historical understanding that the region itself of Macedonia was not an impoverished region, but the church was a persecuted church. Persecuted people and persecuted churches are generally at odds with the prevailing culture. It's clear from Paul's words that these people were afflicted and are in poverty. Impoverished likely because of their persecution. It's difficult to buy or sell goods or work for others when you're looked down on because of what you believe. We know a little about the affliction from what we are told in Acts chapter 16 and 17. Paul himself was imprisoned in Philippi. He knows something about what these people were dealing with. But notice something else here. There's an abundance of joy mixed in with their poverty. The church, this church, isn't overthinking the situation. In their mind, there's another church out there, a church where Paul was sent from, to share the gospel with them, a church with people equally persecuted and poor, and they need our help. We're in. Paul describes their response to the ask as an abundance of joy despite their poverty. Not only did they give, but look at verse 3, they gave beyond their means. Not only did they give beyond their means, but they begged Paul earnestly, for the grace to take part in the offering. The story has all the markings of the widow at the temple that in Mark 12, 44, when Jesus said to his disciples, and I quote Jesus, out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Isn't that what we're witnessing from the Macedonians right here? Well, there's a fun play on words Paul uses here while he explains the example of the Macedonian churches. And in verse 1, Paul says that the churches have been given the grace of God. And then later in verse 4, he describes the church begging Paul for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The word grace in verse 1 and the word favor in verse 4 is the same Greek word. It's charis. And if I combine these two verses using the same English word grace for charis, it sounds something like this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, dot, 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 because they begged us for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see the impact of God's grace that's being had on the Macedonians? 
The grace of God on the Macedonians caused them to show grace in turn to the church in Judea through the process of being generous. They can't get remotely close to generosity until they demonstrate they understand God's grace in their own life and then desire to exude grace on others as Jesus did for them. And what happens after grace is received and grace is given? Well, it had changed the world. In this case, a marginalized, poor, afflicted Gentile church giving beyond their means to a church made up of Jewish believers in Judea. There's no ROI, there's no return on investment that's going to be realized for this transaction, at least not in earthly measures. But there is a return found in the abundance of joy and a truckload of grace. See how Paul describes the Macedonians' spiritual walk in verse 5. Their level of generosity was unexpected, but I would argue not a surprise. Why not a surprise? Because, quote, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Oh, college church, what we're witnessing taking place in this example is what happens when a church gives themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to others. Paul's speaking to us today as much as he's speaking to the Corinthian church then, a church that gives himself first to the Lord and then to others will be a church that excels in everything. This is what he points out in verse 7. He's urging the Corinthians and us to excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love. Paul's urging the Corinthian church and us to also excel in this act of grace. And so now with the model of the Macedonian church before us firmly, Paul then goes on to tell the church to go and do it. This brings us to our second and final division, verses 8 through 15. Finish the job. Just finish it. Paul turns his attention to the actions of the Corinthians. If I were to paraphrase verse 8 in my own words, it goes something like this. Corinthian church, do you have the grace of God found only through Jesus Christ within you? Then prove it. I don't for a moment believe that compelling the Corinthian church to give generously to the offering for the church in Judea is Paul's primary goal in this passage. There's so much more at stake for the Corinthians. In the last chapter, we heard about Paul's joy in learning about the Corinthians' repentance. In this chapter, he's not letting his foot off the gas pedal. He's driving the Corinthians into taking steps that are going to bring about a deeper and deeper level of maturity in their walk with Christ. We know historically that Corinth was a prosperous city. It was a city with two harbors, a vibrant trade industry. And there's a sharp contrast in this passage between the two churches that are in focus. The poor, afflicted Macedonian churches and the church with means, the Corinthian church. And there's an obvious irony in that it is the Macedonian churches that are to be modeled after in their example of giving. Paul plays on this contrast by bringing into focus the equally contrasting nature of Jesus in us. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Freedom from sin that we have been given by our faith and trust in Jesus for those of us in this room who have accepted him as 
our Savior, is the grace in which Paul's talking about here in verse 9. This grace, his payment for our sin and our reconciliation to God because of what Jesus did on the cross, this is richness. We are rich because Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, became poor by coming to earth to willingly die for what? For our sins. He was rich and became poor so that all of us poor, wretched, sinful people would become rich, saved by grace. The grace of God that the Macedonians were commended for was nothing other than the grace given to them through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They understood this grace, and they valued this grace immeasurably. How else could this church exhibit joy, joy in poverty and in their abundant giving? Paul's pleading with the Corinthians to model the Macedonians, yes, but is of so much more importance for them to model Jesus, who demonstrated a willingness to become poor so that they could become rich. Notice, too, that by putting the focus on the grace of God through Jesus and the immeasurable riches that we receive from our salvation for all of eternity, how it makes a mockery out of the wealth of this world. Compare God's grace and the riches that we receive from God's grace with all the wealth in this world. There's no comparison. Wealth, in verse 9, is not measured by a bank account, but by the amount of grace that we have received. This is why Paul says in verse 10 that giving generously out of receiving the grace of God through Christ is to their benefit. Of course it is! It also says in verse 10 that they had the initial thought of doing it a year prior, but for some reason it didn't happen. There was a spiritual roadblock in the hearts of the Corinthians, and now that they've repented, Paul is urging them to get on with it. Give! Out of the overflow of what Jesus did for you on the cross, no more excuses. You understand grace and forgiveness now because you repented. Finish the job. Paul's not asking the Corinthians to give beyond their means as the Macedonians did. He just wants them to demonstrate their faith in Jesus by giving out of what they have. And that's found in verses 11 and 12. And this leads me to my final point about this passage. There's a universal and very natural concern that is generated from people who have saved any amount of money, large or small. I know we all in this room have had this question run around in our head from time to time. Well, what I have today, is it going to be there tomorrow? Especially when I need it? For anyone who's relying on Social Security or their retirement account for income in their retirement years, a thought inevitably enters the mind somewhere during our working years. Will Social Security still exist when I retire? Will the stock market perform sufficiently so that I have enough to live on in my retirement years? How Paul finishes this passage seems to address this very natural and real concern. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance will supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever whoever gathered little had no lack. Well, folks, that's Paul quoting Exodus 16 right there. That's when God gave the Israelites the manna. And this is 
what Exodus 16, 18 and 19 says. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. Paul's comforting the Corinthians by explaining that there may indeed come a day in which they will be in need. And it just might be the churches in Judea who come to their aid. But it goes deeper than that. By including the verse from Exodus and referring to the manna that God gave the Israelites and that this provision was only good for the day in which it was gathered, Paul is reminding the Corinthian church that God is the one who provides and his provision is perfect for today. And while it is God who gives us today that which will meet our needs for today, it is God himself who we need for tomorrow. Remember, the Macedonians, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. College Church, we need not be concerned about whether our giving today will leave enough for tomorrow. Jesus is our tomorrow. Well, you can't teach this in business school. I treasured my education. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But learning about wealth creation and the art and the science of business without an understanding of the economy of the kingdom of God, as I said earlier, is an incomplete education. Willingly giving up wealth for people in need that will help them in their immediate situation but isn't likely going to get them out of their predicament doesn't fly with the entrepreneurial set. But giving generously points to something far, far more valuable than a bank account or a successful company. It points to the awareness, the evidence, and the proof of the grace of God in our lives. And it begs a question we must ask ourselves, and it's a tough, direct question. I'm a coach, so I can get away with this. Do you lack generosity in your life? If so, might it be indicative of a lack of understanding of what Jesus did for you on the cross? The abundant grace he gave you. And perhaps you've accepted Jesus and are convicted by this question. And my challenge to you today is to give yourself first to the Lord and watch what happens in all areas of your life, including your giving. Perhaps you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Look at how Jesus provides for and loves those who follow him. Look at how Jesus challenges his followers to love one another by providing for their dire needs. You could be a part of this family of followers who gives to those in needs and receives when it's needed. That's what we do here in this church every day. Try to put a return on investment value on that. Should we pray? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and it speaks to the Corinthian church then, and it speaks to us today, maybe even louder. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to read this word, to study it, to meditate upon it, and to watch how it transforms our lives. In this case, our giving. May it be so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.